words and what they mean because meanings are important and meanings matter. The way we interpret things, the way we understand things, sometimes definitions can get a little loose and be interpreted in different ways. So we're taking some terms that we often use as Christians or even general public community and, and defining those in a Christian context. Um, I'm very apt active on a, a, a mobile app called Uvirgin, and I'm sure many of you may have already heard of it. Um, I use it just, just about every day. And I listen to the Bible when I go out for a walk each morning. And it's, it's an easy way to get through a lot of Scripture. I, I try to get through the Bible about every 90 days with it. It doesn't always happen, but close to that. And I listen while I walk. And it's a great way to ingest a lot of Scripture. And um, because you can listen while you're doing other things, you know, whatever you're doing around the house or cutting the grass or going for a walk, whatever you can listen while you're doing that. You can find it at Bible.com or you can search version wherever you happen to get your apps. But each morning, I get a notification on my phone, and the app publishes a verse of the day. And this week, there were a couple of verses that were very relevant to the passage that we'll be looking at today. And we're going to be in the book of James. And one of those verses was James chapter 1, verse 27, which says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And James mentions the word religion, and that's our word for the day, religion. So we're going to be digging into that word and having a look at it. Now, the Bible teaches us that once we come to know Jesus as our Savior, once we come to know Jesus as the one who has paid our sin debt, taking care of our sin problem, that's a permanent thing. It's a once and for all gift. The salvation and the relationship that we receive from Jesus is a forever gift. Uh, it's not like it's a religious carrot that is dangled out in front of us saying, you know, if you're good enough, you can have this, or you keep up, you perform well enough, you can get this. Now, Jesus saves us, and then we live our lives for him. And one of the things that we sometimes struggle with, a lot of Christians sometimes struggle with, is reconciling that fact that salvation is this free forever gift from God but then also tying in the moral behavior and the religious practice and finding how to reconcile those things. Now, if those things don't make me right with God or accepted by God, what are they for? Why do we do those things? And understanding those as how they work into our lives, not as a means of being made right with God, but as a way of life, as the best way to live. And that's a big part of what many, if not all religions are about, is the attempt to learn how moral and religious behavior work and relate to our Creator and to each other as well. And James, in the book of James, addresses that topic very thoroughly. That's, that's something that he talks about and expounds on very well. And one of the struggles with the book of James is that if you don't approach it from that place first of salvation is a free and forever gift from God, it's possible to confuse the moral and religious practice as the means of solving our sin problem and being made right with God. And, you know, if someone has been part of another religion or, or came out of a cult over the years, I've seen this church become kind of a soft landing place for someone who may have been caught up with a cult or a different religion. And, that kind of thinking that I have to be good enough 
to be accepted by God is very stressful. It's a very strenuous way to live. It's very difficult. And I had a discussion with a man uh, from another religion once about works religion. And one of the things we just discussed was how we believe that people get to heaven, how people are made right with God and how we end up there. And the man I was speaking to, when I asked him, you know, how does someone who adheres to your religion get to heaven, was the answer was by reliving a religious and a good life, reliving a religious and good life. And when you ask just about anyone, you can stop someone on the street and ask them, you know, how, how do you think you get to heaven? And they're probably going to say nine times out of ten, if not more, uh, you'd be a good person. You'd be a good person. That's kind of where a lot of people's minds go. When you ask just about anyone, that's how they answer. And I asked this guy as we were having the conversation, I said, okay, well, if you have to be a good person, I said, how good is good enough? How good is good enough? How do you know when you've been good enough to make it? Or how do you know when you've messed it up so bad that there's no chance? And he couldn't answer that question. And he actually got very upset about it, which I kind of understand. It's a stressful thing to not know. That's a very stressful thing to not know. And after that conversation, things kind of took a turn for the worse and got very defensive. But um, that's really the religious thinking of most religions, most people, is I, I've got to try hard enough to be accepted by God. And religion is a word that carries a lot of negativity with it, kind of like some of these other words we've talked about. Even among Christians, the word religion carries a lot of negativity with it. And some of that's justified, some of it's not. Um, it just depends. A lot of it is from a misunderstanding of what the Bible calls religion and how we practice that in relation to our relationship with God and each other and how it shapes our worldview. Um, and we're going to define that today, or attempt to define that, I should say. Every time I come up with a big topic like this, I work on it all week, and I think, boy, I wish I had another week to work on this, but Sunday's coming, like it or not, here it is. So we're going to attempt to define the word religion today and expound on it. And we're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, and we're going to read those. And this is what they say. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and remaining wickedness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man viewing his natural face in a mirror. He views himself and goes his way and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in his deeds. If anyone among you seems to be religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. Or this man's religion is vain. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's pray. Fathers, we look to these words today from Scripture. I pray that you would guide us in that, help us to better understand what religion is, how it relates to us, how it shapes the way we relate to others, how we relate to you, and how it reconciles with the free forever gift of salvation and the life we live. 
And we're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. And I've heard so many people say, yeah, I'm sure you have too. I see it all the time. I'm not religious, or I'm not religious, or I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. And to that, I kind of say, are, are you sure about that? Are you sure you're not a religious person? Because I think when you look closer at culture and people in general, people are a lot more religious than they think they are. Everybody practices religion in some way. Whatever you call it, we have this ingrained thing in us that God has created us with to seek that out. God has hardwired us with this desire for religious practice. And some sort, some fashion, it's, it's almost inevitable in a person's life. Everyone is religious to some degree. It's just where they, they focus that desire, that instinct, whatever you want to call it. But when you start looking for it and kind of understand what it is, you see it, it's all over the place. It's everywhere. Um, generally, when people think about religion in our culture, they probably think about a big cathedral or maybe Christianity, maybe about church, maybe about the Ten Commandments, a set of rules, something like that to follow. And you might, you, know, you might also think of other religions in the world, like Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam, whatever it might be. But I found this kind of general dictionary definition of religion that kind of covers everything. We're going to talk about that a little bit and talk about the Bible definition of it. But if I ask the question, what is religion? This is like the, the Wikipedia version, I guess you could say. It said, religion is certain practices and observances, such as attending worship services, wearing religious garb or symbols, praying at prescribed times, displaying religious objects, adhering to certain dietary rules, refraining from certain activities, proselytizing, and then it says, etc., etc. So there's a lot to that. And a lot of people would say, I'm not religious, but I'd say, okay, is that really true? Okay, are you sure you don't have some kind of religious practice in your life? Now, I'm just making a comparison here for fun. And I realize that people don't see this particular religious practice the same way that we would see church attendance. But I am saying that people very often do things that are very similar to religious practice. They kind of exercise that desire in different ways in our culture. Uh, attending religious practice, by that definition, says it involves attending religious services. Well, what if I've attended every single, every single Marvel movie there ever was? And I attend those movies with my friends. And I've seen every spinoff there is. And when a new Marvel movie comes out, you can expect people to go see it religiously. We even call it religiously. And again, I'm not picking on this. I'm just using it as kind of a, 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 a lighthearted example. But religious practice involves religious garb. It involves religious symbols. And if you were to go see the line of people lined up to watch a Marvel movie, they would be wearing religious t-shirts, religious hats, probably even some religious underwear or a symbolic Marvel stuff. Uh, meditation is another religious practice. They think deeply about the Marvel universe. There's so much there to think about. It's so big. Theorize and, and build dogmatic views of characters and all those different things. And there are collectible figures. There's props. Um, some people spend a tremendous amount of, of, of money on those things, on collectibles, and they display them kind of like religious objects. And religious practice 
it says sometimes it involves dietary rules. You know, Marvel fans, I don't think, practice uh, much in the way of dietary rules, but Christianity is pretty loose on that one too, I suppose. Maybe we go get pizza every time before we go to a Marvel movie. But religious practice says it also involves refraining from certain activities. What if I don't go see DC movies because I'm loyal to Marvel? Um, religious practice involves proselytizing. Uh, I talk a lot about Marvel. I take people to Marvel movies with me. And, and please don't think I'm saying that Marvel movies are wrong or you shouldn't see them. I like them. They're great. Um, I've, I've seen all of them, I think. Uh, there's like 53 of them or something like that total. There's like 27 of the more recent ones. But it's just an example of one of the ways that we can exercise that desire for religious practice. One of the things we could do, it could be sports. Some people are almost religious in their following of sports. Even when you look at the storyline of movies, of Marvel movies even, you can see religious imagery, religious ideas woven into it. Supernatural beings doing supernatural things, good versus evil, morality, saving the world, religious artifacts like the Infinity Stones, for instance. Um, if you're not familiar with Marvel movies, sorry, you're probably wondering what I'm talking about, but maybe some spoiler alerts if you haven't seen them. Uh, there's an attempt to restore things back to the way they used to be. There's even a rapture of sorts when Thanos snaps his fingers and half of the people in the universe disappear. Or later, when Iron Man does the same thing and, and brings all those people back and sacrifices himself to save everyone else, he becomes the savior of the world. And again, don't think this is meaning you shouldn't go see Marvel movies or anything like that. It's just a story. It's, it's a pretty good one. I'm just illustrating that we have a desire for religious things and a desire for religious practice. And when you start looking around, you can see it all over the place. It's everywhere when you start looking for it. And that's a pretty lighthearted look at it, but it can also get darker than that. It can get more serious than that, different, different shades of it as well. Sometimes people exercise religious practice when it comes to an ideology or even sometimes in, in a political way. And ideologies are sometimes elevated to the status of deity because someone believes the ideology, if it's implemented, has the ability to make all things right, and at least the, as the way the ideology defines it. And, you know, you can look at someone like Donald Trump, for instance, and, you know, I'm not commenting on his policies or character or anything like that. That's neither here nor there. But his campaign slogan was, Make America Great Again. And my opinion is, is that tapped into that very deep religious desire. And it really resonated with people because they wanted to restore things back to the way they were before they went wrong. And, you know, there's kind of a parallel there with the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. You know, and, and, and the Bible is a story of restoring mankind's relationship with God before sin entered the world and taking things kind of back to the way they used to be. And sometimes people will defend an ideology with religious fervor. And using that ideology as a way to exercise religious desire can have some very negative consequences. When we treat an ideology in that way, we set ourselves up as a righteous savior. You can kind of see that. Some people who adhere to ideology sometimes are so have so much faith in it that they see it as a savior. If we could implement this, everything would be good. And people who don't agree are evil. 
and you know everyone must be proselytized, even if they don't want to be, even forcibly. And that kind of thinking can it can blind us to our own stupidity. It can blind us to uh, our own inadequacies and make us blind to the negative consequences that can come with an ideology. And you know, to be truthful about it, there's been some Christians who have confused an ideology with what James calls pure and undefiled religion. Because they often have what feels like a very religious motivation. And sometimes they even share some of the same motivations that Christians do. But pure and honest religion can do things that ideologies can't. Uh, where an ideology makes us feel you know, like a self-righteous savior, blinding us to our own inadequacies, Biblical Christianity has a very well-developed teaching on the depravity of man. It's very clear on that. It teaches us those things very clearly. So what is true Christian religion, and what does it do? Practicing Christian religion establishes needed qualities. It establishes needed qualities. In uh, verses 19 and 21, James says this. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and remaining wickedness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. So what does Christian religious practice do? Well, first, it establishes needed qualities, needed qualities for, for life, for everything, for interacting with people, for shaping our worldview. It establishes needed qualities for that. And then we can approach those other things from that foundation. And James, when he writes this, he's writing to persecuted Christians on how to practice Christianity in a very difficult situation. And to do that, he says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And if the goal is to exercise wisdom in a way that brings a good outcome, hearing is the first step, to listen. And sometimes I think that we, we forget that we can listen to what someone else has to say patiently, and it doesn't have to change a thing about us. It doesn't have to change the way we think. But James says, be swift to hear. Listen first. And a lot of what we see happening in the world is, is really nothing more than ideologies just trying to outshout each other, and nobody's listening to anyone. There's no hearing going on. But a Christian is instructed to be different. We're instructed to listen, to listen. And I think it's so good the way James says, be swift to hear and slow to speak. And it's one of the things in Scripture, like so many other things in the Bible, that's, that's counterculture. And that he says, be swift to hear because we're generally slow to learn. He says, be slow to speak because we're usually quick to act. And Christians practice hearing quickly, and acting slowly. And he adds that, be slow to anger. And anger, anger is a secondary emotion. It's the product of something else. If we're angry, it's probably because we're afraid or we're hurt or something else is going on. And being a Christian doesn't prohibit being angry. Jesus was angry. But we're instructed to be careful in how we exercise that anger, be care in careful control of our anger. And we rule it. It doesn't rule us. 
and Christians practice controlled anger. Anger is not sinful, but how we exercise it can be. And as James goes on to say in verse 20, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Remember, James is writing to Christians living under persecution, and no doubt they would have felt angry and vengeful, as any of us would have. And if we exercise anger in, in a vengeful kind of way, it's only going to lead to more sin. Only God can vindicate the righteous without becoming sinful. Only God is the righteous judge. That doesn't mean we don't stand up and work for what's good, for what's right. I hope nobody takes it to mean that. But we do it out of love. We do it out of care. We do it not out of anger, but out of love. And if we can't do it that way, we should probably wait to act until we can. And next James says, therefore, therefore, which is kind of like saying, okay, because of what I just said, now do this. And then in verse 1 he says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and remaining wickedness and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. And that statement that he makes there ties back in with, with the anger of man not working the righteousness of God. So sometimes anger is the result of filthiness and wickedness that we have yet to lay aside. Maybe we carry around a grudge or something like that. When we are saved from sin, when we are forgiven for our sin by God, that doesn't mean our sin is completely gone. We always carry things with us through life. And we work that out throughout our life. And anger may be the result of filthiness and wickedness that's still part of our life. And if you're someone who carries a grudge, for instance, and has a desire for revenge, that's probably going to result in a lot of anger in your life. And you're going to feel that. And the Bible says, lay those things aside knowing God is the righteous judge. And that's something else that ideologies can't do. Matter of fact, they often encourage things like anger. They're often based in the anger of man, which the Bible says does not work the righteousness of God. Uh, someone explained hanging on to that filthiness and wickedness is like having a hangover that you never get over. It's just always there and you always feel it and it never completely goes away. And Christians practice laying aside filthiness and wickedness while receiving God's word with meekness, those things go together. And what does that mean? The Bible says to receive with meekness the engrafted word. And that means we come to God's word from a gentle, teachable disposition. And, you know, there's, there's always, we always have to have that filter of, okay, does this go along with what the Bible says? Because there's a million things on the internet that are just junk. And, you know, not everything I say is going to be right and perfect either. But when we come together, or when we look into God's Word, when we read it for ourselves, we do it with a gentle and teachable disposition. We're going, looking to be formed by it, to shape, be shaped by it, to learn from it. And we recognize that authority, and we submit to it. And it's, it's not just a passive thing, but actively consuming God's Word, taking it in. And James calls it the engrafted Word, which is interesting. When I grew up, or where I grew up, the climate was very dry, and it was very cool. It was very high and arid. And apples grew very well there. They grew very well. And my grandfather, he was a, a farmer in his entire life, and he was a very uh, gifted gardener, which he did a lot of in his retirement. 
and he had an apple tree in his front yard and he had grafted several different species of apple to the same tree. And at one point, there was, I, I'm pretty sure it was five. I wasn't very old, so I don't remember that well, but I'm pretty sure it was five different kinds of apples growing on the same tree because he had grafted them all together. And it was pretty cool, but that doesn't last forever. It doesn't last forever. Eventually, what happens is they cross-pollinate, and, and the dominant species or the dominant apple takes over and the whole tree becomes that. But I think that illustrates what James is talking about when he says the engrafted word. It's engrafted into us, it grows into us, and eventually it, it kind of takes over. And that's the fruit that we produce. When you see, receive it with a hungry, uh, gentle, teachable spirit, it's gonna become part of who you are. It's gonna be engrafted into you and it's going to grow and it's going to eventually be the fruit that's going to dominate your life. And then verse 22 and 24 go on to say, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man viewing his natural face in a mirror. He views himself and goes this way and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So first we receive the word with a, with a gentle and teachable spirit. We go to it, we look at it, we receive it. But that in itself is not enough. The next step is doing what it says, being a doer. You hear me say all the time in prayer, you know, help us to learn your word so that we can live it out in the world around us. God's word is very readily available to us, but availability in and of itself is not enough. It's just not enough. If you listen to it, but you don't practice it, I'm gonna get a haircut this week. It's starting to drive me crazy. If you listen to it, but you don't practice it, if you listen to God's word, but you don't practice it, is that really any different than anyone, someone who refuses to listen to it in the first place? In fact, it may even be worse because you've heard it and you know what it says. But what we're talking about here is the practice of practical religious practice. Church attendance is becoming less and less of a thing. Religious practice is something people do, even though they may not recognize it, may not be in a Christian context. So what do you think it is that's causing that? At least, in, that's not the case in everywhere in the world. China, Christianity is growing. Um, Africa, Christianity is growing. But in the Western culture, it's just kind of fading away, or church attendance is anyway. And I think a few things cause that. One of them is that some people have been caught up in, in ideologies more so than, than and they've replaced Christian religious practice. And I think another problem is, and I hate to say this, but frankly, it's often boring. It's often boring. But to do anything worthwhile takes time and discipline, and sometimes it's boring. And to compete with everything that's going on in the world. I mean, you have to discipline yourself to do these things. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. I mean, if, you, if, if I were to go down and speak in a theater and they're playing a Marvel movie next door, I, I'm going to be realistic about where people are going to end up. They're going to go watch the movie. They're not going to come listen to me talk. Um, even, even if I was free, even less, like, less likely so if I was charged as much to see the movie. But it's not always exciting. Sometimes it is, but not always. And I think sometimes another thing that kind of adds to that 
boredom or lack of interest or people not feeling this is very relevant is a loss of balance between the intellectual side of it, the intellectual belief, and the practical belief, the practical practice of Christianity, being a hearer and not being a doer and not just a hearer. And we all wrestle with this at times. It's very easy to, to study and dig into your word and think of God's word and think about it a lot. That's a good thing. You know, it's not that that's bad at all. But Christianity has some hearers, but not doers. And there are certainly some doers. But James talks about it. He kind of addresses that. He says, you know, he talks about looking into a mirror. And why do we look in a mirror? You know, I look around and I see everybody this morning, and I bet every one of you looked in a mirror this morning because you don't look like you just got out of bed. And we look in the mirror so we can see what's wrong and we can see what needs to be fixed. We look in a mirror and go, oh, my hair's a mess, or I need to wash my face. We look in the mirror so we can see if we have spinach in our teeth, things like that. And when we look into God's Word, it's like looking in a mirror that shows us who we are and it also shows us what things to need to be fixed, just like looking in the mirror. But if we're going to walk away from that mirror, and this is what James is telling us here, if we're going to walk away from that mirror without picking the spinach out of our teeth, why even bother looking in the first place? It's, there's no point if we don't fix what needs to be fixed. And that's being a hearer, but not a doer of God's word. What good does that do? It doesn't do any good at all. And among believers, and like I say, this is easy. It's easy to fall into that knowing about Christian religion, but not so much the practical practice of Christian religion. It's in the practice where the meat and the maturity are. I really, over the years, I've wrestled with that a lot in my own head. I'm like, okay, is the maturity knowing a lot about it, or is it what you do? And I think it's really in what you do. I mean, you can be a mature believer and not a theologian at the same time. It's in the doing more so than the hearing. The hearing's important, don't get me wrong, you know, but th those two things need to find an equilibrium. And Christian religion isn't just knowing what God says, it's putting into practice what God says, being a doer of the word. And our last two verses say this, it says, if anyone among you seems to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained by the world. So to finish up, James gives us three essential examples of Christian religious practice. Three essential examples. We're not going to spend too long on these. But this isn't everything, but they are essential things. They're examples of what we will do if we are a doer of the word. And the first one is to control your tongue. Control your tongue. The Bible says if we don't do that, James writes, if we don't do that, our religion is empty and worthless, and anyone who thinks otherwise is deceiving themselves. And, you know, again, we all struggle with these things from time to time. I do, you do, we all do. But if it's an ongoing practice that's never checked, we never try to work on that, we really need to give some serious thought to what we're about and what we're doing. And you think about how much damage our tongue can do. Words, it can do good as well, but think about how much damage it can do. It's very powerful. It can lie, it can complain, it can criticize, it can blaspheme. 
Our tongue can tear people apart. It can hurt people. It can gossip. I, uh, someone once called gossip the art of confessing other people's sins. But what we say, what comes out of our mouth, reveals what's in our heart. And John Wesley was once confronted by a very critical lady, probably right after he preached, or right before, right before, or right after, one of the two. But uh, she came up to him, and she didn't like his tie. She said, the strings on your bow tie are way too long. So I went and he found a pair of scissors, and he gave them to her, and he said, well, trim it up to where you think it should be, where you would like it to be. So she trimmed it up, and he uh, uh, got the scissors back from her, and he said, Madam, your tongue is an offense to me. Would you stick it out so I can trim some of it off? Um, anyway, I don't know how that turned out, but that was the end of the story. And the next essential practice of Christian religion is alleviating the suffering of others or caring for those in need. And we talked a lot about this last year during the book of Acts. It's one of our key principles of what we do. And remember also that when James wrote this, he's writing it to people who were under persecution. They had been pushed out from their home from Jerusalem, and they're scattered all over the place, and they're living a very difficult life. They had a lot of problems on their own. And sometimes the best thing we can do to help ourselves is to help someone else. And in the world we live in now, that's getting kind of a, a challenging thing to do. It's more difficult. You know, to controlling our tongue is pretty obvious, but, you know, helping people in need is, is, is kind of hard because... You know, a lot of people aren't, they're not necessarily struggling for food. Um, most people have a place to live, things like that. It's not so obvious when someone is suffering. You know, if you walk through the mall and you look around, and you can't necessarily just pick out who might be suffering. Suffering today, it's often more emotional and mental than it is physical. But that doesn't mean there's less of a need to help people who are suffering. It's just harder to see. And sometimes if we have a suspicion that someone may be suffering, it's, 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 it's a good idea to ask, are you okay? What's going on in your life? Are you doing all right? And we can be a help for someone and help alleviate suffering in that way. Okay, here's, here's our third essential. James says, keep yourself unstained by the world. And if we're going to be in the world doing things, interacting with people, helping people, we're going to need to be in and amongst people in the world. And I like what James says in keeping yourself unstained because sometimes you hear the terminology of keep yourself separate from the world, which can kind of almost imply some distance. And that's not really what the Bible means. You know, we've all had clothes or carpet or something that has been stained. And when something is stained, it's permanent and you can't get it out. So practicing Christian religion is going to mean getting your hands dirty, but keeping your heart clean unstained. To keep yourself unstained means you maintain your biblical morality. You maintain your integrity. You know, you practice those essentials and things that we've talked about. It means letting God's word set the standard for our belief and our conduct instead of whatever happens to be happening in the moment. And that's a struggle. It's a struggle to do that. You know, let's be frank about it. It's not an easy thing. And there's a lot of things that we can get caught up in that want to drag us away from what James calls pure and undefiled religion. And sometimes we can trade those things and, and hardly even recognize that we're doing it. So get control of our tongue. Take a look in the mirror of God's Word and think about it. And one of the great things about Christianity 
is that God very openly recognizes that we're going to sin and we're going to get off track and we're going to do things wrong. That's, that's a very well-developed teaching in Christianity. But he also always gives us the opportunity to turn back to him. You see that in the Old Testament all the time. Israel would wander off to all kinds of crazy things, and then they'd turn back to God. The same is true in our life. We can wander off. We do all kinds of crazy things. When we get there, we can turn back to God. And the Holy Spirit helps us with that. He convicts us, shows us where we're wrong. When you know Jesus as your Savior and you sin, you're convicted and you're sorry and you repent, but you're not despised, you're not rejected. And that is really, for me, the defining thing that makes Christianity special, makes it different from other ideologies and other religions. Your your righteousness is not reliant on you. And what we practice, what we do, the way we act, the way we interact with the world is important and it matters, but it doesn't determine whether or not we are accepted or rejected by God. The shed blood of Jesus does that. And Christianity defines those two, separates the religious practice and the acceptance. And to me, that's a very strong proof that Christianity has to be the right thing, has to be true, because it shows very well that all people are sinful and all people are are separated from God, and I believe that. And the Bible also shows us that we don't have the ability within ourselves to fix that, and those things are very obvious in a practical way. And I don't see any other logical, reasonable, or practical way for us to know God unless God himself does that for us and makes it possible which is what Jesus did on the cross for us. And now God offers that to us as a free gift. That free gift, free forever gift of salvation, he offers that. But he doesn't impose it. He doesn't push it on you. He doesn't force it on you. He offers it for you to accept. And if that's something, you know, whether you're sitting in here this morning or maybe you're listening in online, if that's something you struggle with, maybe something you haven't understood before, maybe it's time to think about that and think, well, I've been struggling my whole life, stressed out, wondering if I'm being good enough for God, but the reality is, is Jesus was good enough for me. And when I look to him in faith and trust, relying on his sacrifice for me, he will save me. And I can receive that free forever gift of salvation. I'm going to ask you to stand for a moment. I'm going to have a word of prayer. And I encourage you to think about these things. Go back this afternoon, reread that passage. Think about looking into God's word as a mirror, being a doer, not a hearer only. Hearing is very important, but we also need to be doers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and praise you. We're so thankful that you love us. We're so thankful that we can turn back to you. Even when we sin, we can repent, we can ask forgiveness. We can get back to practicing our life in the way that you want us to. We're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful that he came and he lived a perfect life and he sacrificed himself for each and every one of us on the cross. He shed his blood. And that when we look to him in faith, we can be saved, and we can know him as our Savior. We're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.